chapter 20, verse 25. Rather common is the importance we give to farewell speeches. It may be a a final encouragement before leaving a long-held position or office. Uh, Maybe it's words shared before moving never to return again. Uh, Maybe it's the final word someone shares with their family before dying. Whatever the context, we often cherish such words. Such words often sum up the significance of one's life, what they live for, what they valued, what wisdom they might want to pass along to the next generation. Today we finish Paul's farewell speech to the Ephesian elders. And they are words to cherish. Paul spent three years investing in this church. And so relationships go deep. We witness their fondness as they accompany Paul to his ship here. There's much weeping, embracing, and kissing. Paul is going to Jerusalem and he won't see them again. And so he imparts some final words. Words he wants seared on the elders' minds. Let's pick it up in verse 25 and hear the word of the Lord. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. For I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I didn't cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It's more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Father, I pray that you would come and lead us now through your word. I pray that you would make me faithful to that word, that would speak truth and do so with clarity. And I pray that we would receive your word with joy in the Holy Spirit, and that this word would bring even further health to this church further health to its leadership, and further joy to our hearts. 
In Christ we pray. Amen. So these are our words spoken to elders. So it's very sobering to preach this message. I'm sure it will be sobering for Ben and Dale and Wes to hear this message. With such a focus, though, the rest of you shouldn't check out. Okay, Paul's words may be to elders, but they were written for the entire church. Whoever reads Acts is reading about the risen Lord Jesus building his church... And that involves Jesus gifting the church with leaders who exemplify Paul's words. Would you know what to look for in a pastor? Would you know what's right and good for a church? Your role relates to godly elders in multiple ways. According to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1... You must recognize and appoint elders who fit certain qualifications. Some of those qualifications receive further treatment here. These words help you discern which men ought to pastor, which men need further maturity, and which men you ought to avoid. These words also equip you to hold your elders accountable. They call our attention to what sort of leadership honors the Lord Jesus. The more you're equipped by these words, the better that you'll be able to hold us accountable and speak into our lives for our good and our maturity and our progress in the faith. So we need you in this role. So give attention to these words. And something else, Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So insofar as elders imitate Jesus, the church ought to imitate their elders. These words develop Christ-like qualities for you to imitate as well as your elders are learning them. They develop attitudes toward the church that all of us should share. In fact, Paul's speech depicts the church in some of the most beautiful, endearing terms. Also, these words are important because they help you pray for your elders. Dale, Wes, Ben, myself, Lord willing, others who who join us, we need you to pray these very things for us today. We need you to ask God to make these things real to our hearts and evident in our leadership of you. So, with that said, let's jump into this passage, looking first at Paul faithfully entrusting the elders with the whole purpose of God. This is verses 25 to 27. He says, Behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, For I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Other translations have the whole purpose of God. What is that exactly? Well, if we look at what Paul declares, all the words related to him declaring, announcing, preaching something in the immediate context, um, we find several clues. I want to work backwards from verse... And we, we start with verse 25 there. We see... He also delivered to them the kingdom. Verse 24, 
He was to speak the gospel of the grace of God. In verse 21, it's repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 20, it's, it's anything that was profitable to them. If we then broaden our search to the way Luke uses the same word elsewhere in Acts, we find even more clues. Uh, In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, and Acts chapter 4, verse 28, it refers to God's predetermined purpose that's revealed in Scripture and accomplished in Jesus Christ. You might remember these words. Jesus was delivered over according to God's predetermined purpose purpose. Same word. Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Jews were allowed to do to Jesus whatever God's hand and God's purpose had predestined to take place. And then Paul himself uses the same word in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11, speaking about those in Christ. He says that you were made an inheritance, or we were made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of God's will. So we're dealing here with God's unshakable, predetermined purpose for His kingdom to redeem the world. And He has revealed that purpose in Scripture, and He has accomplished that purpose in Jesus Christ. That's the purpose Paul talks about here with the elders and entrusts to them. For three years, he taught them God's purpose. If you want to know what and maybe an example of what he taught them, just read the letter that he writes later to the Ephesians. These people who he had stayed with for three years, we have a letter to this church where he lays out and unfolds God's purpose and how that purpose ought to affect your life. Ladies, you've got a retreat next weekend where you'll look at God's purpose in detail from Ephesians. Everything they needed to know about God's purpose, Paul gave them. He has been a faithful messenger of God. He even depicts his faithfulness in language that recalls Ezekiel 33. If you remember in Ezekiel 33, Ezekiel was to be God's watchman. And a watchman would scan the horizon and warn people of any danger that was approaching. Well, likewise, Ezekiel, as a prophet, was responsible to warn Israel of God's coming judgment. That was God's purpose that he was to reveal to Israel. And if Ezekiel kept quiet about God's purpose, he was responsible for their blood. But if he was faithful to warn them and to deliver God's purpose, they were responsible So Paul draws from that Old Testament imagery saying, I'm innocent of the blood of all. I've been faithful to deliver to you God's purpose. And what makes the imagery from Ezekiel 33 even more powerful in this setting to elders, to shepherds, is that God God was fixing to curse Israel's shepherds for not delivering God's purpose in Ezekiel 34. Unlike the false shepherds who did not announce God's purpose, Ezekiel was faithful to do so. And so also here, Paul is faithful to do so. 
If these elders choose to do nothing with Paul's teaching, if they choose to ignore God's purpose, if they choose to keep God's purpose from God's people, or tweak His purpose to save their face, or use His purpose just to get rich and promote their name, they will stand guilty before God and not Paul. He is innocent. He has been faithful. And now, just like Paul, these elders must be faithful to declare God's purpose and spend their lives according to God's purpose. Well, what does that look like? Right? When these men return back home to Ephesus in a couple of days, how, how should they pastor? What will faithful, faithful leadership look like? One, it will look like vigilant shepherding shaped by the work of the Trinity. It will look like vigilant shepherding shaped by the work of the Trinity. Notice in verse 28 the imagery of shepherding. Uh, He compares the church to a flock. Uh, The verb that the ESV translates to care for literally means to shepherd. Do the work of a shepherd. Why, why describe the role of an elder or pastor in terms of shepherding? Because that's the imagery God uses to depict His care for His people. The Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 23. The Lord will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom. Isaiah 40, verse 11. God's Son, Jesus Christ, is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The lamb in the midst of the throne guides his flock to springs of living water. Revelation 7, 17. By comparing elders to shepherds, the Bible is saying that elders must image, image the true shepherd of the sheep who leads us beside still waters. The problem with many human shepherds in Scripture is that they don't image the Lord's care. You can get examples of this in uh, like uh, Jeremiah 23. In Ezekiel 34, the shepherds over Israel were cursed by the Lord for not reflecting His care. Poor shepherding is evil because it lies about God. And it lies about God's concern for His people. True shepherding, on the other hand, pays careful attention to all the flock. Verse 28 says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Meaning, stay alert. Don't fall asleep when you're supposed to be watching sheep. Don't jeopardize your alertness with drunkenness and folly and apathy. Remain vigilant in the care of the sheep. Who are they? Where are they? Are any of them malnourished? Are any of them weak? How can we care for them? Are they hurting? Are they on the fringes in danger of wolves? 
Did any of them get lost last night? Count them again. Count them again. Any sheep bullying the other sheep? Any straying into harmful pastures? Pay careful attention, he says, to all the flock. Not just some of the flock. Not just the sheep in the flock that you like more than the others. But all the flock. Know the flock well and image God's concern for them. But notice further how this ministry is shaped by the work of the Trinity. He says, pay careful attention to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The Holy Spirit makes pastors and gives them to churches. Seminaries do not make pastors. The Holy Spirit ultimately makes pastors. These shouldn't be men volunteering to fill a leadership vacuum. Like, oh, all right, I'll do it. You don't want that guy. They should be men compelled and driven by the Spirit of God to shepherd. Now, Paul tells us how to discern whether the Spirit is making a man a pastor in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And sometimes we've summarized those things here at Redeemer, in terms of compulsion and character and competency. Compulsion. Do they have the Spirit? Do they evidence the Spirit and the joy of serving the church? Character. Do they exemplify godly characteristics that Paul and others have outlined for us in Scripture? Are they godly men to imitate? And their competency. Do they know the Bible and can they teach it well? Next, Paul lays out the purpose for elders to care for the church of God. So why does God give the church elders to care for His people through them? But notice to whom the church belongs. The church doesn't belong to any of the pastors themselves. The church belongs to God. Church, you are God's people. Once, we were not God's people. We were cut off from God and separated by God from our sin. We were not welcome into fellowship in His assembly. But here it says we are the church of God. We are the church who belongs to Him. How did that happen? How can sinful people enter such a relationship with a holy God? How can guilty people belong to God's assembly? Well, the rest of verse 28 tells us, He obtained us with His own blood. Those words have amazed and baffled people for centuries. They're amazing because it's God's own blood. But it's baffling because in what sense can we say that God has blood? The divine nature can't bleed. Well, a couple of solutions have presented themselves. It could be translated, which God obtained with the blood of His own. Okay, God would then refer to God the Father, and He obtains, he obtains the church with the blood of His own Son. And that would be true. 
But if one keeps the translation as it is here, and this is a good translation, God refers to God the Son. And we must remember that God the Son has both a divine nature and a human nature. The person of the Son always acts through his divine and human natures according to their respective capacities. All right, put your thinking caps on here because we're getting a little dense for about two minutes. The person of the Son always acts through his divine and human natures according to their respective capacities. Now, often what's asserted of either nature can be asserted about the person of the Son, but not the other nature. So what's true about His humanity, you can assert about the person of the Son. And what's true about His divinity, you can assert about the person of the Son. But what's true of His divinity and His humanity can't always be asserted of each other. Make sense? So in this case, his human nature bled on the cross and not the divine nature. But one can still say it's God's blood because acting through his human nature, the person of the Son bled. That is a remarkable truth. So that's another way to read the text. And several major confessions throughout church history have taken it this way. Either way, though, what really stands out here is how precious the church is to God. God obtained the church with His own blood. There's no divine gift superior to the gift of God the Son. There's no one of higher value, no one more treasured by the Father, no one possessing greater riches, and yet God did not spare His only Son, the Bible says, but He gave Him up freely for us all. Can you see how, the, how that work of the Trinity might shape the elders' shepherding? Not, not only were we entrusted with this role by the Holy Spirit, but every single person in the church is worth the blood of God's Son. That's how precious the sheep are to the Father. That's how precious the sheep should be to the elders. And that's how precious everybody in this room who belongs to Jesus should be precious to you. No matter the annoyances or the stubbornness. We're talking about sheep here. Sheep are stubborn and dirty and full of lice. And smelly. No matter the annoyances or stubbornness or weaknesses or sins or relational incompatibility or young or old or male or female or weak or strong, whoever they are, if they belong to God, they're worth the blood of Jesus Christ. So pastors and their churches can't grow cynical about those that God deems precious. I was reading Psalm 83 this week and there's this parallel where he talk, 
where it comes out very clearly. He was talking about God's people and he, and he refers to them as his treasured ones. We are treasured by the Lord. And not only that, elders must remember that they too need the blood of Jesus to bring them to God. So seeing the extent of Jesus' care as the good shepherd when he was willing to lay down his life to obtain these sheep compels the elders to lay down their lives too for the sheep. Faithful leadership will also look like steady admonishment in the word of God's grace. Steady admonishment in the word of God's grace. Our family likes to play this game called Carcassonne. And uh, we added the hills and sheep extension the other day. You can imagine, you add the hills and the sheep, you also get wolves. Right? Any shepherd knows that where there are sheep, there will be predators. Verse 29 says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. The wolves are false teachers here. They don't care about the flock. Jesus said that you will know them by their fruit. So not just their teaching, but their lives. The way they act before you will prove whether they truly care for God's people or they're just using God's people. And Paul's warning couldn't be more relevant. I mean, we live in a day rampant with false teachers. Jesus and the apostles warned us of this. 2 Peter 2.1 speaks of them secretly bringing in destructive heresies. 1 Timothy 6 speaks of them having an unhealthy craving for controversy, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Jude says they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. 2 Peter 2 says they have hearts that are trained in greed. We could name many. Prosperity teachers. Like Joel Olstein and Joyce Meyer and T.D. Jakes. And Robert Tilton and others. Not only do they misunderstand the covenants and lie about suffering, they turn Jesus into a means of selfish gain. Other teachers elevate out-of-body experiences or their conversations with God above the Scriptures themselves. Others teach that salvation by, comes by faith in Jesus plus something else. In Paul's day, it was the circumcision party. In our day, it's the Roman Catholic Church and Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and anybody else who says you've got to clean yourself up first before you come to Jesus. Others warp the grace of God by denying its power to create holiness in God's people. We can think of the free grace movement or the... Or the uh, uh, mainline denominations who have, who have embraced not God's vision of sexual morality, but, but their own.
moralistic, therapeutic deism plagues many churches who reduce Christianity to a list of rules and meeting felt needs and vague God talk with no Christ at the center. Rob Bell questions God's justice and eternal punishment. Greg Boyd questions God's knowledge about the future. Becoming more popular is to reject Jesus' death as a penal substitutionary atonement. Steve Chalk and others. And more subtle still are views that conflate the gospel with their own particular political ideology. How does the church survive? What protects the sheep in the face of so many wolves? God and the steady admonishment in the word of His grace. Paul commends them first to God. The church will endure. The flock will survive by God's doing. Right? It's as the, as the old hymn goes, the church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish. He's with her to the end. We will make it because God is with us. But God also uses means. He uses elders steadily admonishing the church in the word of God's grace. Look at verse 32. I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So the word of God builds up the church The Word of God gives you the inheritance. What inheritance? Christ in all His glory. The kingdom and all of its riches. We mature and we reach the inheritance by the Word of His grace. Faithful elders must take that Word and steadily admonish the church. Paul commends his own example to follow in verse 31. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I didn't cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Night or day, that means he did it all the time with tears. He admonished them. Not just this, "Ah, take it or leave it type counsel. No, he's weeping for them. Don't go there, brother. Hold fast to Christ, sister. Don't believe that lie. Here's the truth in Christ. It's precious. Elders preach the word and they teach the word and they emphasize the word because we want, to, we want you to grow into Christ and we want you to attain glory with Jesus. God has designed elders to be His means of protecting the saints from wolves and building up the saints for glory all by admonishing them with the word of His grace. So if you hear us keep returning to the Bible and you keep hearing us bring up the Bible in conversations and you watch us open the Bible and you read us quoting Scripture in your text messages and you receive counsel rooted in Scripture, don't be annoyed by that. Don't think we're just out of touch with reality. No, Please know it's because the Word is going to make you like Jesus and the Word is going to get you to glory. Don't brush it off. And that's for me too. I got three elders here. Also, Dale, Ben, and Wes. And I cherish their admonishment in the Word of God's grace. 
Otherwise, I'm not making it to glory. God has ordained the ends ends for His saints. He's going to get us all to glory. And He's ordained the means to get us there. One of them is the word of grace. Finally, faithful leadership will look like pursuing joy in the Lord Jesus by imaging His generosity especially toward the weak. Pursuing joy in the Lord Jesus by imaging His generosity, especially toward the weak. Verse 33. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Let's just stop there for a second. 1 Timothy chapter 3, this is the elder qualifications. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 3 says that an overseer must not be a lover of money. Titus chapter 1 verse 7 says that he must not be greedy for gain. One of the characteristic marks of a false teacher is that his heart is trained in greed and he, eyes, and he has eyes full of lust for, for personal gain. The Bible is very clear. Leaders are especially vulnerable to loving money and turning pastoring into a means of selfish gain. So Paul says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. And then by contrast, Paul says this in verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So on occasion, Paul received gifts from from other churches outside of the area that he was actually ministering in. And that extra support would often free him to Minister the word full time. But his normal habit was working hard to support himself. Regardless of whether that other money came in. And he did this for several reasons. Uh, In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he did it to image Christ by setting aside his rights to receive payment in order to serve others the gospel free of charge. Uh, In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, he worked hard so as not to burden anybody and to discourage idleness in the churches. And some of that comes out here as well. We see that he supported not only himself, but he worked hard to meet the needs of his fellow workers. But in verse 35, we get a further motive. He says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Those are, those are Jesus' words. It's more blessed to give than to receive. That is, it produces further happiness, further joy, further satisfaction in the Lord to give freely. Jesus is appealing to our joy in Him with these words. The goal of working hard isn't just to have wealth, but to use wealth in ways that image the Lord Jesus' generosity. And when that's our standard way of operation, two things happen. Your joy in the Lord increases and the gospel of grace goes on display for others. 
It gets illustrated, displayed, enjoyed more deeply in the church. Isn't that how generosity works itself out in 2 Corinthians as well? 2 Corinthians 8? Right? You've got, you got this impoverished church and it says that their abundance of joy in Jesus, their abundance of joy, it overflows in a wealth of generosity. And then this grace stands behind it all in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked in our sins with no hope for salvation. But Christ, the richest person ever, chose to love us by giving up his riches to see us glad, strong, rich, healed, and clothed. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When your joy is in that good news, you're motivated to give. You're motivated to serve. You, you, you won't be enslaved to money or to coveting other people's stuff. Now, there are other instructions in uh, other instructions that Paul gives to churches supporting their, to, to support their pastors in Galatians 6 and 1 Timothy 5. And this support should free them to minister the word regularly. But when elders live by Paul's words here, they teach the congregation not to set their hope in earthly riches. Instead, their lives alongside their words teach the church to set their hope in Christ. That means whatever they are making, they're not hoarding and keeping to themselves. And showing nothing, being stingy towards other people. No, they too are working hard. And showing generosity that we see exemplified in Paul here. Christ gave himself up to meet our greatest need when we were weak. And now he lives in the church that we might image his generosity toward others. So pursue your joy in his lordship. Pursue your happiness in imaging his generosity, especially towards those who are weak. And the weak here is referring to are economically weak. But if you look at the pattern of Paul's ministry, you can perhaps apply this to others who, who, are, who are weak in other respects. In terms of illness, it's applied, same words apply to those who are in illness or those who are weak in the faith or those who are weak with fear. Pursue your happiness, imaging his generosity, especially towards those who are weak. He is worthy and the gospel is good. Vigilant shepherding shaped by the work of the Trinity. Steady admonishment in the word of God's grace. Pursuing joy in the Lord Jesus by imaging his generosity. That's a picture. That's a glimpse of faithful leadership. What words to cherish. I wonder what the elders talked about on their two-day journey back to Ephesus. Or was it a quiet trip back 
wiping tears from their eyes, well sobered by the incredible responsibility before them. These words have certainly worked me over well this week. And I also produce, and it also, but it all, at the same time, it also produced deeper longings to stay the course that Paul outlines here. I love pastoring this church, and I know Dale and Ben and Wes do as well. Would you pray these things for us? Would you pray these things for the leaders of other churches in the area that you know, like the Paradox Church and City Church and Calvary Bible and Solid Rock and Normandale? Would you hold us accountable to these truths and walk with us in them? Would you commit yourself to pass these words along to the next generation? So that when we're dead and gone, they might appoint men through whom the care of the Good Shepherd himself might be recognized. I pray that you would. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. We pray to you pray for you. Father, I do ask that you would take care of this flock here, that you would protect this flock from false teachers, from wolves, and that you would sustain for a very, very long time until you return, you would sustain this church with healthy leaders. And when, when there is unhealth, We pray that you would sanctify us and make there to be health as we return again and again to the word of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.